Hey, welcome back to the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Today, we have uh, Macaulay Williams and Kelly O'Shea from BR Distilling. Uh, so Macaulay Williams is the president and CEO of BR Distilling. They make Blue Note bourbon and Riverset rye. Uh, they're out of Memphis, Tennessee. Kelly was instrumental in making sure that this, uh, this conversation took place. She was nice enough to get me some of their bottles that they offer. Uh, their first one is the Blue Note uh, Juke Joint Whiskey. It's 93 proof. Uh, it's really good. Second is their nine-year-old uh, bourbon. All right, this one's delicious as well. This is their straight bourbon, aged nine years. We've got the River Set Rye, which is also 93 proof. I can't really see in the reflection. Um, and then saw on social media and had to um, make a comment about it. And Kelly was nice enough to make sure I got a bottle in my hands. This is their single barrel river set rye. Um, this is 119.9 proof. I had one drink out of this and thought I should probably not overindulge in this one because that's, uh, that's pretty delicious stuff there. So uh, they're also coming out with a number of new uh, offerings here in the near future. One of which is called the Crossroads, which is a French, I think you said a toasted French oak barrel. Uh, so, oh yeah, I can't wait to try that one out. Uh, and that was not a plug for uh, hoping they send one. I will definitely buy one because they've been more than generous with what they've sent me. So um, check them out, check out their social media. They've done a really nice job with the Blue Note Bourbon on Instagram, as well as the River Set Rye. Um, so check out their social media presence. It's really good. You've got links to their website from there, where depending on what state you're in, you can get bottles delivered to you and their cost is really, really affordable. They make, this is really good whiskey. And I think you'll really enjoy the prices that they are offered at as well. So for the money, uh, I would highly recommend this. I've been sent a good amount of bottles since I started this podcast. I will definitely say that without a doubt, this is one that's on the list of, um, companies who have sent me bottles that I will happily spend my own money on and buy at a later date. There's no doubt about it. I really enjoy this. Um, I really enjoy their whiskey. And then also, I think after talking with Macaulay and Kelly, you get a real um, idea or real sense of pride that they take in their company. And, you know, especially from Macaulay's perspective as being the CEO, the, the president of the company, um, he really is invested in making good whiskey and is determined to make Blue Note Bourbon and Riverset Rye a household name in the whiskey industry and, and the path that they're on. I mean, I, I keep hearing people talk about this stuff in very high regard. So there's no reason to think that this is not going to blow up. I can only imagine that they're going to get bigger because everybody who tries it seems to really enjoy it. So I, I would try and get your hands on it sooner than later. Uh, I don't think you're going to regret that in the least bit. Uh, but what was cool about this conversation for me was, you know, when I, when I started this podcast and I wanted to talk with people who are in the, the whiskey industry, it was kind of for the exact reasons that you hear from Macaulay and from Kelly about just the passion that it takes to be successful in this industry. Um, for me and not knowing much about it and trying to learn more and trying to talk to people in it and trying to taste different bourbons from different companies. Um, and then hear stories and get to hear it from whether it's founders or distillers or people that work for each, each brand. Um, you hear a different story and there's always similarities, but the passion behind uh, why Macaulay does this and how he goes about it is 
uh, really, really impressive. And, and just his knowledge also, I mean, it's not to say that people aren't knowledgeable when they're in this industry. However, like his, his knowledge and the depth that he goes into with this, it shows why the popularity is starting to soar because it's, it's really good whiskey. And, and you've got somebody behind it that is knowledgeable and passionate and you know, what, what more could you ask for? So um, check this episode out. I think you'll really enjoy it. Check out Riverset Rye and Blue Note Bourbon on Instagram. Check out their website and go buy yourself a bottle or three. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So check us out. Let me know what you think. Check the description box below if you want to support the Barrel Proof Baseball podcast channel. Um, different ways. You got Manscaped, you've got walk-offs and whiskey, uh, you've got Patreon, you've got Amazon store, you've got my Venmo. If you just want to send me money because you're feeling kind, uh, you can do that if you'd like. My Venmo is not on there, but you can ask for it and I'll happily send it to you. Uh, that's all I got. Check this out. Macaulay Williams and Kelly O'Shea from BR Distilling. All right. Uh, Macaulay Williams, thanks so much for jumping on here. Kelly O'Shea, thank you as well for being on here and for setting this up today. Thanks for having us. No problem. So tell me a little bit about, well, yourself and how, uh, how you got into whiskey itself. Yes. Yeah, so this is Macaulay Williams, president and CEO of BR Distilling uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, proud producers of Blue Note Bourbon and Riverset Rye. Those are our brands. Um, I am an attorney in Memphis. I like to call myself a recovering attorney because I got out of the full-time practice of law to get into the craft uh, whiskey business, to so the distilled spirits industry. Um, I practice mergers and acquisitions for a large law firm here in Memphis uh, called Baker Donaldson. And we had a client of ours, um, really a client of mine, that had started a vodka distillery that wasn't really working out fell in love with the idea of craft um, spirits through working with that client and actually childhood friend of mine. Um, and together we talked about pivoting the, the plan, the business plan that is to whiskeys and um, just thinking that whiskeys made more sense in Tennessee than did vodka. And of course, bourbon and whiskey, American whiskey seeing quite a resurgence in popularity sort of the whiskey boom or the whiskey renaissance right now. So it just seemed to make sense. So over the course of about 12 to 18 months, put together a new business plan. And by that point, like towards the end of that time, like all I could think about was whiskey barrels and whiskey. Um, and so I actually uh, went to some of my clients and we actually ended up buying the distillery out of liquidation. It's a little unusual. I you was know, supposed to help liquidate the company, not uh, necessarily buy it. Um, <laughs> And then I came on full time and I just was so into it. But at that point, I was like, all right, I talked to my, my new team that I'd put together and said, I'm, I'm ready to quit to run this thing full time. And, and that's what happened. It was sort of a, its own roundabout journey. It took about two years um, from start to finish to get in. And then we closed on the purchase of the distillery in August of 2017 and really haven't looked back. Um, just started, we, we bought the company because we wanted the license primarily. It, it can take up to two years from start to finish to get a distillery licensed. Distilleries mm -hmm. are both federally and state licensed. And then there's all of the local city, county permits, like use and occupancy, fire, et cetera, et cetera. Just a lot of red tape. And so by buying this company, 
we were able to step into their license and just kind of hit the ground running on our new business plan. Was it, were you always a whiskey fan or was it just a better opportunity to be in whiskey versus like vodka? You know, as my parents unfortunately can attest, I took to drinking at a pretty young age. Um, so it always happens. liked it happens, right? I always liked uh, a good drink. Um, and it was in law school that I really started to like whiskey. You know, in high school, it was like we were drinking whatever we could on the weekends after sports games or for the dance or whatever. And then in college, it was a bunch of cheap beer, light beer and cheap whiskey and cheap vodka. And just kind of, again, whatever we could afford to have the best time. Um, we even drank some of those uh, alcoholic energy drinks in college. Those are the cheapest Park. way to get a good buzz. Yeah. <laughs> Park. And there's one in Virginia where I went to school called Juice that was 13% alcohol. And it had like three Red Bulls in it worth of caffeine. Uh, so that thing would, I, that would do you, that would do you right <laughs> back in the early 2000s. But um, uh, I was there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I can feel my heart beating right now. Oh God. Yeah. There was that feeling like you would drink one and you're like, yeah, your heart would start to palpitate. Your face mm -hmm. would turn bright red. There's a reason why those things aren't on the shelf anymore. They're probably not yeah. healthy. Yeah. But uh, in law school, you know, I started to calm down a little bit and um in law school, there's a whole lot of solitary studying, right? Like you have your big books and your outlines, you're just kind of in the library or at home studying a lot. And so I would look for, you know, like a nightcap or something to unwind after having like 10 cups of coffee throughout the day. And then kind of, you know, elevated my game a little bit and started trying various bourbons. And a buddy of mine actually turned me on my first one I, that I recall was Bowman's because it was a Virginia mm -hmm. bourbon and I'd gone to college in Virginia. And then from there, that led to me just trying different things and uh then i really grew a taste for a good bourbon and when it came time to this business model it was definitely born from the fact that we found i found whiskey my partners found whiskey just inherently more interesting than vodka but also just the sense of place makes a lot of sense you know we're not in sure. um you know name your other not in hawaii or florida right which you can make whiskey there and probably make great whiskey but it just doesn't have that cachet or brand recognition so just kind of the combination of interest and then just being in tennessee kind of mm -hmm. led us to the whiskey path my uh my big curiosity whenever i hear of somebody doing something like that it's always interesting because i think people are you know always like inherently wanting to do something cool like wanting to do something different or just something cool like how do you go about making that leap? Like, how do you take the plunge and go, you know what? Like I'm done being an attorney. Like I'm going to jump in and go both feet into this whiskey business. Yeah, there's some, so I love entrepreneurship in general and always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and have formed a number of other side hustles or businesses along the way. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of a general saying that, you know, a lot, there's everybody, there's a lot of good ideas, but very few people willing to actually act upon them. So, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I had that idea. And it's like, well, yeah, just because you thought of it in your shower or on a drive to work, that's sort of irrelevant if you're not willing to take the steps to make it actually happen. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is actually just being committed to figuring out how in the hell to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and I have my personality as such when I get my wife can say it's to, to my detriment oftentimes. <laughs> when I get fixated on something like I am like focused on that and we're going to make it happen. And so my legal background certainly helped with some of the initial kind of red tape or um, just like the formation documents and kind of knowing the steps of what it takes to found an, a company, like just an entity, you know, to get, we started off, we're a corporation now, started off as an LLC, but just the necessary steps mm -hmm. of that. Um, 
but I think it's mostly just will and just actually being committed and taking down notes and going for it. Now, okay. So what is that process like? So you've, you've made your decision, you're going to do it. And you, like you said, you, with your law background, like you're probably able to provide either help or insight or do it yourself that, you know, you may normally have to have somebody else do for you or, you know, whatever that process is like, I'm sure it's a little tedious to uh, continue going through that process, but uh, what, what's the process like now you're, you've decided to do it and like, you're, you're getting it going. Like, what's that process like now? Okay. So after you formed your entity, started your legal business and raised capital, you know, a big, another big thing is actually getting the capital to uh, fund said business operation. So let's just assume we've got all that uh, in place. Your listeners can read about that online or listen to another podcast for that stuff. Then it comes down to like formulating your actual strategic plan and executing it. And for us in the uh, age spirits industry, the big barrier to entry is inventory, you know, needing mm -hmm. barrels of aged product that's ready to bottle. That's why so many craft distilleries start off in vodka or white rum or gin or any other unaged spirit. We had no desire to do a white spirit out of the gate. Um, so working with other distilleries to curate and acquire inventory was step one. So, so that we had barrels um, to blend and bottle right out of the gate. Uh, it's extremely capital intensive do that because aged whiskey is worth a lot of money whiskey actually is a unique commodity in that it appreciates in value as it ages so the older the whiskey the more expensive it is in bottle same within barrel form uh, and then getting in term long-term supply contracts with other distilleries uh, to get that inventory pipeline going out of curiosity real quick what is that what's a long-term contract like i've never heard about that before like what, what kind of uh, length of time is that typically yeah. So, I mean, it can be a, a not long-term to say supply contract could be a one single asset purchase of a single lot of barrels, or it could be like in our case, a five-year term with uh, options to extend. Okay. And so our long-term contracts aren't to buy other people's barrels. It's to have other people produce our whiskey for us at scale. So we go to a large industrial distillery. We're a large distillery in, uh, industrial meaning just size, not necessarily referring to the lack of craftsmanship in the process, but we have worked with distilleries in Middle Tennessee and in Kentucky uh, and bought up excess capacity on their still uh, for them to make our recipes for us at scale to get the cost down. I mean, the distilleries that produce, you know, whiskey at volume are hundred, if not multi hundred million dollar facilities. Um, so this isn't just like, your neighborhood craft distillery, but bigger. I mean, this is like a whole campus of a facility uh, that produces whiskey at the highest quality, at the highest volumes. And that's how we can get our cost of goods down, you know, just get our whiskey costs down uh, to make this whole dream economically viable. So tip, uh, typically from a, from another, from the other side, it's like the sourcing side of you know, going out and getting whiskey, like typically are people going out and picking out barrels that are already there that are already being made that, that matches something that they want versus like what you're doing, having somebody else make what you want specifically? Yeah. So there's two different, so sourcing is like a often confused term. So mm. when I think of sourcing, I think of buying aged product, like already on the market through a broker mm. or through another distillery. Um, whereas what we're talking about is contract distillation. Some might mm -hmm. call that sourcing, but it's really different in the fact that we are creating the mash bill, um, selecting the oak, 
and then selecting one of if they have available yeast strains oftentimes a facility will only have one or two available mm -hmm. yeast strains due to yeast's ability to contaminate a facility you know it's airborne um so you read a lot about people quote taking their own yeast strain up to mgp uh mm -hmm. they don't let you do that you can't do that that's <laughs> a fake thing the whole plant that sure. would contaminate the whole plant um but um so that's really contract distilling, which is different than buying aged spirit from a distillery or a broker. So mm. people might not realize there's a pretty robust trade of barrels behind the scenes amongst a lot of distilleries in the industry, amongst a lot of brands. You know, a lot of brands don't have a physical location. They're just run from an office building and everything mm. is done from contract. Uh, and then there's also brokers, they're middlemen that specialize, you know, guys and gals that specialize in buying from A and selling to B and taking a spread on it. Um, and so that's really what I would call more sourcing is buying from a broker or buying from an inventory lot that's placed on the bulk market. Uh, we have done some of that to get started, but now we're really focused on weighing down our new fill under our own contract distillation to get our volumes up so that we can increase our sales and so that we can one day build that $100 million facility of our own here in Memphis. Uh, we have a long-term vision of making Blue Note bourbon and Riverset Rye, two of the biggest whiskey brands in America. I, it, I think it's interesting you say it because I don't know that that's very uh, commonly known. I think sourcing gets thrown in no matter what. It's like if you're not making it your place by your yourself that it's being sourced versus like you said, it's they're making your whiskey. I mean, it's it's a different thing. Yeah, they're just two fundamentally different things. Um, I don't see anything wrong with either of them. Mm -hmm. um, but just to be clear, yeah, there is this miss. It's, it's really interesting because whiskey aficionados know so much about whiskey, the brands, the history. But there is this amazing lack of understanding of how it all actually works behind the sure. scenes. And that's because most people don't discuss it. And um, there's a serious barrier to entry there just in terms of getting the information. It's very hush-hush um and it's an opaque market really um that's controlled by a handful of players um so it's I, just, I find it really fascinating i, I know i was just say that's why i think this whole thing is super fascinating because there is like i think you you can find some information you know and, and people are very quick to go oh it's mgp or it's you know sourced by who and like there is more to it and there's stuff we don't even know that is going on and it's like okay learn as much as you can but then sit down and enjoy the whiskey you know like don't, you don't need to dissect every ounce of this before you can just enjoy what you're drinking that's right and think about it um with wine um oftentimes the winery doesn't necessarily own the vineyard you know mm. um, i know it's a little different just due to the number of steps that would convert grapes into wine but um it's 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 very analogous uh, in our industry so i think people are quick to write it off but i think people are coming around as more and more brands are coming out there and more more people are putting out really quality stuff. I think it's easy to turn your nose up um, if it's not good, right? Sure. Now, what was the process like for you to, you know, as you say, you went from drinking, uh, you know, Dave's whiskey out of a plastic bottle in college to starting to appreciate better whiskey, um, you know, moving forward and now getting to a point where you're educating yourself on both whiskey and the whiskey industry. And then also like from a business perspective too. Well, that's what makes it so fun is you have like the arts and crafts side of it, of the mm -hmm. flavors, the blending, the um, selecting inventory, and then the creating the design of your packaging and branding and all of that, uh, which is really more of that kind of 
uh, art side of your brain versus then, all right, like we have employees, payroll, health insurance, uh, sales, negotiating that logistics. That's mm-hmm. really more of like this, the, the pure business fundamentals. So it makes it fun because we're constantly combining both sides of our brain in that sense. Um, so for me, you know, I started off probably like a lot of people drinking whiskey and cocktails and then going to drinking it on the rocks. Mm. And then now I pretty much only drink it neat. You know, it's hotter than hell in Memphis in the summer. So sometimes in the dead of summer, uh, we, I will drink it on the rocks. It's kind of something that's almost unbearable to drink <laughs> whiskey neat, sure. especially like if I'm at like a wedding or some outdoor event. And if I can even remember what those events are like these days, yeah. pandemic times. Um, and then just the fun thing about whiskey is I, I always equate it to folks that don't understand it is to wine. And we all know how people, how much people can nerd out on wine and study the process, the flavors and all of that. And, you know, whiskey is the same. It's, yeah. it's maybe slightly, you know, different in the sense that it's a spirit, et cetera, but it's the same in terms of the infinite, uh, amounts of complexity that there are in the spirit. And that's what makes it really fun to make it a career, or a, a business out of it is all of that complexity. Like you can't ever really learn everything there is to know about it because it's always changing. People are always innovating and coming out with new things. And to me, the most exciting thing on the actual product side is that innovation within the industry and how, you know, you, we've all seen the flavor wheels of where the flavors are supposed to come from, what you're tasting, you can market. And I see almost every quarter that flavor wheel growing, expanding, like new flavors are being found in whiskeys as people are introducing new methodologies and techniques, whether it be through barrel finishing, uh, toasted oak or secondary oaking or secondary aging. Uh, And then also just with varying yeast strains, more complex mash bills, different aging climates, um, you name it. And I think that's that's what's really exciting is seeing more and more complex flavors come out of whiskey. I think that, that is so much fun. Like when you talk to people that are you know interested in it, or they're, they're trying to get more into it and they're asking questions about it and just the conversations that you get to have over a glass of whiskey about it. And like, you know, nobody knows everything. And it's fun when you sit down and someone's like, oh, I get, you know, creme brulee here. And somebody else goes, really, I get orange. And it's like, there's not really a right or wrong. And it's, you know, you, it's for you to kind of enjoy. And I think that's so much fun. Um, and I'm sure learning more just about the process of it, it makes it even better. For sure. It, I kind of think of it too as whiskey is its own cocktail in a glass, even mm. if it's just neat. You know, that's what makes it so fun for me uh, personally. And that's why I like it. And I think a lot of your listeners will agree. It's kind of once you kind of get hooked on the taste of good whiskey, it's hard to go back. There really yeah. isn't going back. You can't, you can't ever really quite enjoy uh, the everyday stuff you used to drink ever the same way. I mean, you can drink it. You don't have to be a snob, but especially if you're at like an event or traveling and mm-hmm. they don't have anything and you're just kind of like, ah, I'm just left, not kind of fully satisfied. Yep. It's just having it to have it. That's right. So, okay. So now for me, like a brand perspective, um, why Memphis? Are you guys, are you from Memphis? Is there, what's the connection to Memphis? Yep. I'm born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, mm-hmm. People from Memphis tend to have a, a chip on their shoulder a little bit. And there's a lot of city pride. I'm not saying it's the city with the most city pride in the country, but it's certainly up there. Mm. Um, And so we're in Tennessee again, just to reemphasize that point. So just making whiskey production here makes sense. We're on the banks of the mighty Mississippi River in the far southwest corner of Tennessee. 
And if you've read any of the history of the early whiskey trade, you'll notice that the river was how the barrels were transported. And so there is a cool historical element there too of where all those barrels coming out of the Ohio River Valley um, would come through the port of Memphis on their way to New Orleans for East Coast distribution. So there's a great historical significance there. Um, we today still are a logistics hub of the intersection of Interstate 40, America's longest mm -hmm. interstate and the Interstate 55. So 40 goes from North Carolina to Los Angeles, 55 from Chicago down to New Orleans. And then we have a number of rail lines as well as FedEx being based here. So just from like a logistics standpoint of getting our product out, yeah. uh, it made sense. And then uh, we have a tremendously advantageous climate here with our heat and humidity, a little bit warmer than Middle Tennessee, a little bit warmer than Kentucky that helps speed up the maturation process and our humidity helps suppress loss to evaporation or angel share. Then lastly, although I probably should have said this first is our water. We have a killer water source. So we distill all of our product offsite with our partner distillers, but we bring it down to Memphis, all of our barrels down to Memphis to age uh, because of our unique aging climate. And then we blend and bottle everything on site here at our distillery. So that's where we uh, cut in our Memphis water to proof down our whiskey um, and we have some of the purest water in the world, actually, through a multi-million-year-old aquifer system uh, below the city. Uh, Memphis is unique in that. We're one of the only cities in the world that uh, derives its water from a self-contained uh, artesian well system below the city that's naturally occurring. So that's a really uh, fun fact, and it definitely plays into... Uh, the smooth finish on our whiskey because mm. this water has a really low mineral content by nature. So it makes it perfect for uh, proofing down and blending whiskey. That's why there's also a lot of industrial breweries here, like White Claw. Mm. Um, is a lot of White Claws produced here in Memphis, Mike's Hard Lemonade, as well as Coors is a big Coors plant. And then um, recently they added a big high noon plant here. Uh, and it all has to do with that water. I, uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know you guys had such a good water source there. Yeah, it's kind of a, a little secret, uh, really. Um, but and then and then within the branding, um, so that's just kind of like why it made sense from like these mm -hmm. are all of the assets we have kind of being here. Um, and obviously we're looking for assets because this is our home and trying to justify it. Um, but from a branding perspective, Blue Notes named after the Memphis Blues. Um, you know, Memphis really is, Memphis is, this, is the city that is mentioned in more songs than any other city in the world. Hmm. So not Nashville, Los Angeles, London, you name them. Memphis comes up in more music and that's because of the blues, which the blues was the birth of American music. So the blues gave rise to jazz. It gave rise to rock and roll and uh, R&B, soul, modern day gospel. And even modern day country music is honestly uh, rooted in a lot of blues riffs and notes. So it's had a profound influence on just American music. And we thought that was a pretty cool history to play into with our branding uh, because music and whiskey obviously just kind of go together. And then both of them have notes. You know, music has musical notes and we sure. have tasting notes in whiskey. And so a blue note in music is an actual music note that makes blues its own unique genre of music. And so we thought that was a really cool double entendre into tasting notes and musical notes and just kind of really cool trying to build a brand that has a meaning behind it. Yeah, that's awesome. I now I've not spent much time in Memphis. Um, I did have one 
uh, evening on Beale Street, and I heard we had a really good time. Um, <laughs> I, it was, uh, yeah, it was a long time ago, but it was it was a good time for sure. So I can definitely see with the blues influence how uh, that's a kind of a natural marriage there between the whiskey and the blues. It's really cool. For sure. And we have a great uh, culinary scene here uh, mm. rooted in barbecue. Oh, uh, yeah. Which barbecue is kind of uh, uniquely American. So bourbon's uniquely American. Blues is uniquely American. So too is barbecue. Um, so Memphis is known for, we're known for our barbecue. And we also find that there's something that not only works with blues and bourbon, but also blues, bourbon, and barbecue. And you go to all these Instagram pages of the bourbon influencers, all, they're always grilling and smoking meats. Yep. Somehow, for some reason, it just works. I think all three of them, blues, bourbon, barbecue, have uh, a commonality in the sense that there's relatively simple inputs put in and then remarkably complex outputs. So mm. not a whole lot of crazy ingredients in, in bourbon or barbecue. Um, and same too with blues music, it's the process and the way in which it's processed and manifested that makes it so complex on the back end. So I think that's something kind of cool about that. So now getting into like the whiskey itself, when you are bringing barrels in, so that's good. And I was going to ask you about that. So you're, you're blending everything, everything's being stored in Memphis at your place. Mm -hmm. So when you're like, for example, the nine year now, is that something that is given the dates and everything, that something that's aged there that you, that you pick up, that you're blending with like a new recipe of yours, or how do you, how do you do that with like your aged, uh, your aged process? So the nine years an outlier in our portfolio. So any, mm -hmm. anything with that kind of age on it is something where we've worked to literally source that product mm -hmm. that with folks, other distilleries that have really great in excess inventory. We go through, curate out the barrels that we want, bring them down to Memphis and then age them for a period of time prior to bottling that that can range from six months to a couple of years uh, prior okay. to blending and bottling um, on, on our nine year premium small batch. We actually blend two different mash bills together to create our product. So we do definitely make it our own um, through that process. But um, we figured we would much rather have in our portfolio, some extra age stuff, mm -hmm. even if it involves our sourcing it um, as opposed to just trying to, do our uh, own laydowns through Riverset and Juke Joint. We just, we thought the market was mature enough to understand, you know, the sourcing aspect of it. And uh, so far it's been a big success. Yeah, it's, just, it's really good. You'd hope they'd uh, be mature enough to understand that by now. You'd hope. Yes. What's, now talk to me a little bit about the, like for example, the, uh, the Juke Joint. So everything's 93 proof, correct? Yes, that's our house proof outside of our barrel proof stuff. Okay. And then, so when you're, so you're getting the barrels in, you're blending it there. And then is it a blend and then add water to proof it? Or is it, are you adding water, proofing it down, and then adding more whiskey? How does that process work? Yeah. So that is literally called processing whiskey in terms of like the legal regulations. So you dump the whiskey out of the barrel. Um, you know, as we know, it's stored in the barrel at barrel proof for cast strength, the higher alcohol content than the average bottling. So we dump, we, we go through select the barrels we like, we dump those into uh, a dump trough, which then gets pumped over into our blending tank. Um, that all gets churned and melded together um, to create consistency. We taste it again, et cetera, get a final proof on what the net or the sum of all those barrels together proof out to be. And then we reduce it with water down to 93 proof when we're doing a batch. 
Um, and that process can take about a week to do. Um, alcohol and water actually don't like to mix well together, especially with the fusel oils from the barrel. So one mm-hmm. thing, we never chill filter our whiskeys. We feel like leaving in those fatty oils really help round out the mouthfeel and add a whole lot to the taste. And so when you combine water, alcohol, and oil, they don't like to mix. So it does take about a week for them to homogenize uh, and come together. Cause you can have certain pockets within a big blending tank that are actually different proofs. You don't want that obviously, cause then you'd be bottling stuff that's not accurate. So make sure to make sure it's homogenized. And then what happens after the tank is we pull it out into smaller tanks mm-hmm. that get taken over to our bottling line. And then we bottle it from there. Um, our batches are typically around 20 barrels per batch. So they are small batches. Mm-hmm. Um, on juke joint, sometimes we flex up to around 30 barrels, but we try to keep it around uh, 20. Um, but on the nine year, we keep it at 20, um, which when we say small batch, we mean it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an actual small batch, not the, uh, the Heaven Hill small batch. That's thousands upon thousands, you mean? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I, I was looking online and one of them, I think it was the, Juke joint is Kentucky straight bourbon and the nine years to Tennessee straight. Is that right? That's correct. Do you do any like uh, charcoal filtering on the Tennessee or, or nothing? So the Tennessee is Tennessee bourbon, meaning it has not uh-huh. gone through the Lincoln County process. Okay. Tennessee whiskey. Uh, and that's right out of the gate, kind of on the branding side. One Memphis is very different than the rest of the state of Tennessee. We're in the Delta. Most of the Tennessee is in like the rolling Hills. And just from like a cultural standpoint, we're sort of the black sheep of the state. We're the outliers. And with that, we wanted to do something different. And we felt that Jack had really dominated the perception of what Tennessee whiskey was. So we wanted to do a bourbon and blue note bourbon. The alliteration seemed to make sense right out of the gate. That was just a way to differentiate our product from other Tennessee products. Makes sense. Um, Kelly, can I put you on the spot and, hear about a little bit about what you're doing since you got this all set up for us. So I'd love to hear about what you're doing and kind of what your role is. Yeah, for sure. I'm a member of our marketing team here. So I'm really, you know, this is kind of work, but it's so fun because I'm the outreach side of it is um, great getting liquid to lips and brand exposure. You know, it's super fun meeting new people that are, huge supporters of our brand become supporters of our brand and your community has been, you know, the most valuable thing to us. We don't do the huge marketing campaigns, you know, the, you know, the glossy, you know, celebrity endorsed stuff, Mm. which is wonderful. There are some great products out there, but we're really proud of what we're putting out here. And so, you know, we, we want the community to speak for us. We're really proud of the juice and I think it speaks for itself. So, um, you know, I get to do everything in regards to marketing from, you know, input on product development to getting it, you know, to the consumer. So it's a really fun role. I work a lot with the trade, like the distributors, the reps, that sort of thing. I originally started with the team on sales and then in May, I believe transitioned over to marketing where my background is I come from a tech world. So this is super fun to me. Still doesn't feel like work. It's unreal, but, um, it's every day is exciting. It's new. It's fun. We have some really neat projects in the works, some new products that I'm super excited about. So to be a part of all of that, it's just, it's awesome. Like I can't, I can't um, believe some days that it is work. So we're really enjoying it here. 
That's great. I mean, it is definitely better when you're enjoying what you're doing. It makes your, uh, your work day a lot easier to get through, more enjoyable for sure. I would, I guess my question for both of you would be, how do you, how do you stick out in, in really a crowded space? I mean, there's so many good bourbons out there and you guys are making a very, very good bourbon from a marketing perspective. Like you said, you're not getting celebrity endorsements, but how do you stick out in that way? And then how do you stick out just as a brand overall, that's putting out very good whiskey? I'll let Kelly go first. Okay. I'll go first. Yeah. So authenticity is our big thing. And, you know, it's just a given barbecue blues bourbon, they go hand in hand. So that it's in itself makes a great marketing campaign for us. Mm -hmm. So it's literally connecting the dots, that sort of thing. The other thing, you know, even though we are that craft size distillery in regards to size, no matter our growth, if we become a national brand, which, um, you know, our trajectory is, is going there. We will always stay a craft distillery in the sense of craftsmanship. We're really Mm -hmm. big on the quality that we're putting out in regards to the value. You know, before we started, we were talking about some of our price points. Um, and we're really proud that we have, you know, sub 30, sub $50 bottles that we gladly put in those 40 to $80 categories, I think. That's my answer. I totally agree with that. I think that's a great answer. And in truth, that is the question is uh, how do you stand out? And I feel like um, so many craft distilleries get so hung up in the production process Mm -hmm. and their tasting room experience that they fail to realize sales and marketing is where rubber meets the road. Really everything else, you know, as much as we and your listeners want it to matter the process and the craftsmanship in the bottle. It doesn't. I mean, that's the sad reality of just the consumer marketing business, Mm -hmm. uh, a consumer product marketing business. So we are a consumer product and sales and marketing is where rubber meets the road. And like to Kelly's point, we're always trying to push the authenticity aspect. We believe in marketing the organic word of mouth way. We don't spend a ton of money on these huge, advertising campaigns we allocate a lot of resources to building out a sales team to make sure our product is predominantly featured in all the liquor stores that we want them to be in bars and restaurants that we want them to be throughout our markets um but yeah capturing market share in a competitive market is the question we're still trying to figure it out um but ultimately that's it we're not trying to you know take over the whiskey industry we're trying to capture a sliver of that pie um at the end of the day so it's a great question. That's one thing I've noticed that from everybody I've talked to that's in the whiskey industry. It's like, no, everybody kind of has that same sentiment in some way or another, like, like everybody's doing something. Nobody's trying to say like, we're going to take over. It's just, everybody's like, you want everybody to do well because you want the industry as a whole to be as strong as it possibly can. And yes, you're going to be competing, but nobody is going out and buying one brand of bourbon only. And that's it for the rest of their life. They're going to try things and you hope that I I would imagine you'd hope that they try it and they really like it and they go buy it again or tell somebody else about it and go buy it again. Well, I think that's right. And that's why I always compare our industry to wine. Mm. Um, Think how many red wines there are. I love red wines. I think how many red wines are on the shelf at your grocery store or liquor store. Few people have just like the one brand that they drink only, Mm. right? And whiskey used to be that way of where people would only drink Jack or only drink Mm -hmm. Jim or Evan or whatever their brand was. But now our market has matured. And when I say mature, I don't mean like the people. I mean like the actual market distribution and saturation has matured to a level where people are collecting 
trying new things. And so that is how we're able to get our, that, that's a huge advantage to us and other brands like us is that the consumer is looking to try and experiment and, um, you know, have a shelf like yours behind you that has multiple different mm-hmm. brands on it. It'd be a lot harder if it was the old days where there's only like five brands and we're trying to butter our way in. Yeah. Trying to compete with uh, the big boys who are spilling more daily than most are producing. No doubt. And let's not kid ourselves. They're still the big competitor. So people will often say, who's your number one competitor? And it's like, well, it's really not how this industry works. It's like, sure. we might have brand adjacencies of brands that are of similar quality packaging, et cetera, that we want to be near and around on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And those are just the other quality craft level products out there. But the real competitors um, are the big guys, the conglomerates. And so oftentimes uh, you'll see kind of competitive craft brands squabbling in their sandbox when really they're missing the picture. It's kind of all of us versus them, the big yeah. guys. That's awesome. I actually really like the way you put that. That's really cool. Uh, take me through, if you would, kind of some a little bit about each of these ones that I have, uh, maybe some tasting notes or a little bit about it. Um, I was, I actually didn't know until Kelly told me earlier that this, the, the juke joint is retailing under 30 bucks, which is incredible to me. So A, how do you keep the price down like that? And B, tell me a little bit about the whiskey. I'm going to pour myself some more. So that I don't just completely commandeer the discussion. I'm going to let Kelly talk about <laughs> okay. the tasting notes. Kelly, if you're cool with that, but um, on kind of the marketing strategy and price point, that's a huge emphasis of ours is we mm-hmm. believe in fundamental economics of at the right price, a product will always clear the market. And that also consumers do shop price. And in a market mm-hmm. where prices keep rising in whiskey, we, we feel that there is uh, you know, a backlash that people are sick of the prices keep going up. And so we want to price our products for long-term success. And it's very difficult to compress our margin to do so. But that is sort of like at the very core of our marketing and sales strategy. But that's kind of the boring stuff. But Kelly, hit us with the tasting notes. Yeah, so you're tasting our juke joint. That's the newest member of our family. We launched it in July, I believe. Uh, So obviously launching in unprecedented times was interesting. And it has quickly become our leading skew, which is is wonderful at that price point. It's uh, intended to be the, you know, everyday drinker to our premium small batch at, you know, sub 50, that might not be an everyday drinker for everyone on the nine year. So we were trying to kind of fill that void where we are that household everyday after work cocktail, which we came with a juke joint for that. Mm-hmm. So the juke joint is a Kentucky uh, bourbon, as we talked about, it's aged in Kentucky for a year and a day. So it is considered Kentucky bourbon meeting those requirements and then it is shipped to memphis at some point in there um after that 366 day uh residence in kentucky we then age it further possibly uh blend and bottle it here in memphis and then distribute out of memphis so on our juke joint we're very proud of this label if you look at the actual label you'll see the sheet music in the background the lighter Mm -hmm. blue foil that's actually a blues song. So somebody musically inclined, myself, not so much, could pick Mm -hmm. that up and play the song. We commissioned a local artist here to have um, an actual riff written on on that. So it's super cool on that regard. Um, Being it is a three to four year bourbon, it has um, a little bit more 
uh, heat on it, I'd say, and hasn't had the extra time in the barrel to mellow like our nine year, but it's still uh, designed to be super smooth, super palate friendly. You do not get that insane burn or um, super ethyl that you can get from some of the younger bourbons. So I personally get a lot of uh, citrus on it. I almost get like a persimmon apricot. Um, I really like this. Every time when I was starting to drink this, it was kind of evolving. Depending on what I had to eat or drink that day, I'd notice different tasting notes. But now um, it's, it's at that price point, it's enjoyable neat, but it's also wonderful in a cocktail. We do some really fun um drinks with this particular one it's very cocktail friendly uh super palate friendly as well and being that sub 30 dollar it just makes sense for an everyday sipper and it's a was it 21 percent rye is that what i wrote it's 70 percent uh 21 and nine so 70 percent corn 21 percent rye and uh or i'm sorry multi barley and then nine percent rye i feel like the 21 rye 21 rye. 21 rye, 9% multiple. Sorry. I mean, with the price point as good as it is, and you know, you have a a nice rye content. Like, I feel like this would hold up really nicely in like an old fashioned. Um, You know, it's not going to be too sweet. Um, You know, I think some of those, just for me personally, like some of those really low rye ones, I just don't really enjoy in cocktails because I still want to get a little bit of flavor out of it. So that's for sure. Yeah. I like that. This definitely has a very sweet note. It makes a really good uh, yeah. old fashioned, makes a really good sour whiskey sour. That tartness with it is really nice finish. Um, we have a couple bars that sub uh, another very large brand for this one and do a green tea shot. Hmm. That so it's it's super versatile and um, at that price point, it makes sense for on premise accounts as well you know it's a well in many bars and restaurants so it's it's just a everyday sipper that we're super proud of yeah i, I really enjoyed that one that was uh that was a really good one um and talk about the the premium small batch and this is the one that's that is uh, a mix of two different mash bills correct correct so was- this is our flagship skew this is what they went to market with um, it is a, uh, our little proprietary blend of two mash bills, an 84, eight and eight, and then, uh, is it 70, 22 and eight? That's correct. Okay. Um, mash bill of those, uh, super smooth. It is uncut unfiltered as all of our products are, as Macaulay said earlier, no Lincoln County process here, no charcoal filtering. We like to leave the fatty oils from those barrels in. We think it really imparts a lot uh, in the flavor. Also the mouthfeel of it helps take that edge off with the really makes it a smooth product that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Get a lot of vanilla on this one, a little butterscotch caramel. Um, butterscotch. Definitely very smooth. And yeah, I like this one. This was a good one. Um, now this is, so it's blended with two different ones. So the youngest is nine years, right? Is there any, are, are most of them pretty much all nine years that you're blending together or is there some older ones as well? Nine and 10, um, nine and 10. with, with inventory, you know, there's birth dates that come up. So it's mm-hmm. hard maintaining an age statement is very, very challenging you, uh, due to those birth dates and keeping, you know, you have to always have younger inventory and in that will age up. Makes sense. All right. Now the, uh, the rye, let's talk about that Riverset rye a little bit. 
I just got into rye not that long yeah, ago, so, so I'm kind of new to it, but I like it. Oh, very good. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you. Um, so our river set was designed to sit on a shelf to complement our blue note juke joint, kind of a brother sister combo, let's say. Mm -hmm. It is not your typical rye. If you are that super traditional rye drinker, um, you know, this might hit you a little bit different. This, our rye drinks much more similar to a bourbon. Um, doesn't have too much of the herbaceous note. You get a little of that. Um, I personally get a lot of apple on it, some fresh cinnamon, kind of the apple um, pie spices, as they call it. Uh, this is a three to four year product, uh, again, at 93 proof, unfiltered. And uh, the river set, you know, this is kind of homage to our location uh, here residing, or I think just under mile and a half from the Mississippi is where our distillery sits. So as you can see, we're very proud of this label. It has the riverboat there. And as Macaulay said earlier, you know, that's also reminiscent of the transport of the barrels along the Mississippi. So we have a great story here with this product. Um, again, not your typical rye. So it should be a lot more palate friendly, very smooth. Again, mm -hmm. this one is a sub 30 as well. So 27 to 29.99 and very cocktail friendly or enjoyable on its own as well. Yeah. I didn't know this was also sub 30. I guess they're, uh, you guys are onto something there I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, and then go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you had mentioned another one coming out, right? Yeah. We have some new products coming out, but there's also a cast strength iteration of this river set that hmm. came to market a few months ago. And it's, it's flies off the shelf. If you see that it's got a black label with the gold and those are, um, cast strength, they're single barrel offerings, and they're wonderful as well. It's just a kind of a higher octane version of the river set. Yeah. What does that one come out of? Of all of those, all three of them. Okay. What and what are the what's the proof points on those ones? One fifteen to one twenty seven, depending on the expression, and then the barrel. Okay. So keep an eye out. What what is your uh, distribution like? Where are you guys? I mean, how much? Uh, which, how many markets have you guys been able to get into so far? Check us out at bluenotebourbon.com and riversetry.com, and you can go to the map feature and see. Mm -hmm. But uh, presently, we are in, uh, I'm going to rattle them off here, see if I can do it. Mm. We are in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, uh, Colorado, and Texas. We have some fleeting distribution in Illinois that will be coming back online. And just this month, next week, we're opening up uh, Oklahoma. And we are in the process of uh, opening up uh, Louisiana as well. So that'll be 15 states. Wow. It seems like uh, we in Arizona aren't as lucky as Colorado is. Those guys seem to always get everything up there and we're like the last ones to get any distribution out here so we got to get something changed i don't know what we got to do well arizona is a great state and one that we would probably be one of our next westward expansions you know california is the largest market in the u.s i'm pretty sure for just about anything just because the population uh and that's the same with burden uh, believe it or not but um aside from california arizona would be next but Part of the reason of that is, is I know Arizona gets a lot of tourism, but uh, Colorado gets 85 million visitors a year. So their numbers are highly inflated upon the consumption because everyone's 
on vacation drinking. Yeah, makes sense. It <laughs> seems only smart to get some bottles in their hands. I get it. And in the meantime, in Arizona, we do have online retailers that service Arizona through Curiata and Sealbox. Okay. So if you do get in a pinch, we do have ways that you can still get products. Can are there links? Are there links on the websites to be able to get to those? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, yep. And where where are you guys at on social media? Where can people find you? At so, Blue Note Bourbon and at River Set Rye. And we would love for you to check it out, follow. We're doing some fun things, kind of growing our pages, changing some things up. So. Okay, mostly Instagram. Yes. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Any, anything, uh, any other things future wise that you would like to, uh, you know, let the cat out of the bag on. So we're doing single barrels of our juke joint that have yet to hit the market. It's called juke joint uncut or the blue note bourbon uncut. Um, and those barrels, um, have actually survived a rickhouse collapse. So in order to be Kentucky bourbon, the bourbon has to age up there for a year and a day. And so we age our bourbon there for a year and a day prior to bringing it to Memphis. And then within one of our inventory lots, the Rick house that we had it stored in collapsed, spilling 20,000 barrels out onto the ground and during a natural disaster. So fun story with those, those are coming out at cash strength around 116, 117 proof, uh, 39.99. We typically charge 10 extra dollars for cash strength per bottle because we can't cut it down. Mm -hmm. We think, we think that's a fair price increase. Um, and then really exciting this summer, we're launching a whole new expression called Blue Note Crossroads. Uh, with Blue Note Crossroads, we've taken um, our high rye bourbon mash bill and finished it with toasted French oak. So it's a really cool package, no label. It's all silkscreen printed directly on the glass. Wow. And it's sort of three-dimensional in the fact that like the back label faces inward and projects through the whiskey where it's magnified to go to the front and then it's just a really cool packaging. So check us out on social for the release of that. Um, and that toasted French oak adds a whole other element uh, to the product. So there's a couple other exotic barrel finishes coming too. So just, we're kind of always working on stuff. I was going to say, I think they, uh, sounds like the, the finishing um, thing right now is obviously pretty big. I mean, people seem to be into it and trying some pretty uh, different things. So I was going to ask about that. If you guys were getting into the finishes, cause it seems like they're pretty popular. No doubt. Um, well, Macaulay, Kelly, really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks so much for sending me these bottles. This, this whiskey is outstanding. I really enjoy it. Uh, definitely be pushing it and make sure to put some links in so people can get to your website and order some. So thank you very much. Thanks for your support. Absolutely. All right, guys. Take care. See ya. Bye.